All right. Well, Acts, the book of Acts, if you, if you found it here, if, if you're kind of new to the Bible, um, there's a couple things that, that you want to know. There's some kind of big parts of the Bible that help you navigate it pretty well, all right? It's a pretty big book. I don't know. Some of you look at a book this size, and you're like, oh, I don't read books that big, okay? Well, most of this book, and I'll see if I can find it real quick. Yeah, I can. This half of the book, the first half, is what we call the Old Testament, this littler half is the New Testament, right? This half is the part before Jesus. This is the part of Jesus and after Jesus, okay? So we're in the New Testament here in the book of Acts, and the book of Acts sits right where it should sit. Um, and that is, it, it picks up right where the Gospels leave off, all right? And the Gospels are the first four books of the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Four accounts of Jesus' life from four different authors, all right? And so they recount that. Well, then Acts sits right there, right after the Gospels, right before all the other little letters, the ones written to the places that you've never heard of before, like Galatia and Colossia and all these different um, spots, right? And, um, and the, the book of Acts is, is there because it's the sequel to really the greatest story of all time, the, the story of Jesus, the life of Jesus. And so with the Gospels, we get those stories of Jesus' life, and then right after that, it's what happens after Jesus has been crucified, buried, and rose again. Well, now what? That's where the book of Acts takes off. All right, and so in that, what we see is we see the beginnings of the church. You might not know this, but there was no Christian church before Christ right? You can't have a Christian church without Christ. And so before Jesus, there was no church. And once Jesus resurrected again and ascended to the Father, the believers, the followers, those who had known him and followed him, they have to start figuring out, now what? What do we do? And the book of Acts talks all about that, all right? Um, the, it's at this point in history, after Jesus, as I said, had endured the cross, he died, was buried, and rose again. It's at that point in history where Luke, the author of the third gospel, Matthew, Mark, Luke, writes, picks up his pen again to write the book of Acts, all right? The same man who wrote the gospel of Luke is the same man who wrote this book of Acts that we're going to study. And, and he wanted to give an account of what would happen next. Now, we have a pretty good idea of when the book of Acts was written also, with some of the books of the Bible, you're not sure. We kind of have this kind of, uh, you know, wide uh, span of history. or like, I don't know, somewhere in history around this time. Because they didn't date their letters and their books like we do. Where we write down, you know, September 3rd, 2023, I write this down. They didn't do that. And so sometimes it's kind of hard to figure out where, the, what time something was written. The book of Acts is different. Because at the end of the book of Acts... We know that the Apostle Paul, who we'll get to and talk quite a bit about, is in a Roman prison awaiting his sentencing. And from other historical accounts, we can go back and say, well, we know who, what emperor that was under and where he was at in this Roman prison, so we know when the book of Acts was written. Because when he stops the book, Paul's still there. So he's still waiting in prison. There's no outcome yet. It doesn't say, and then this happened to Paul, or, oh, and then that happened to Paul. We don't know. All we know is Paul's in prison. So because he was in prison, we know that this was written in the early 60s of the first century, all right? The 60s. So about 20-ish, maybe as many as 30 years after Jesus had ascended to the Father, 
All right, so a pretty short period of time. Most of us who are 20 years and older remember 20 years ago, right? Um, so it, it, it's not that far of a space after Jesus had already returned to heaven. And Acts is, is very important in understanding the context of the rest of the New Testament. Guys, you're not alone. If you read the Bible, you come to church and your pastor says, you should read your Bible. Every morning, you ought to read your Bible. Open up the Bible and just start reading. Try to figure it out. Try to understand what's going on. But as you know, there are some parts of the Bible, books of the Bible, you open that up and like, what is that that I just read? What does that have to do with anything? I don't even get any of this stuff. Well, the book of Acts is so important for us to study because it helps give context for a lot of these different things that we find in the rest of the Bible. Because as you study through and you look at the book of Galatians or the book of, of Ephesians or the Philippians or a letter to Timothy or Titus, all these people and all these places are in the book of Acts. And when you understand the his, historical timeline of what happened in the book of Acts, now it starts making sense. You're like, oh, Timothy is the same guy back here from Acts. That's where he came into the picture. That's how he had a relationship with Paul. That's what, how he was developed and then sent to this place that he would pastor. Okay? So the book of Acts gives all sorts of historical context and helps the rest of the Bible make a lot of sense. All right? So it's, it's incredibly important uh, in that way. It's, it's priceless to us. But as we study the book of Acts, I also want you to understand that even though it's, it's history, it's condensed history. All right? The entire span of the book of Acts covers um, around 30 years. It's in multiple locations, with multiple people. A lot of different things are happening. But it's all squeezed into 28 chapters. All right? As, as a church, South Point, our church has only been in existence for less than seven years. It will be seven years in October. All right? But if we were to try to sit down and take all the people that have been part of this church for the past seven years, and what God has done, and what's happened in our lives, and all that over seven years, and write that down... It'd be really hard, just with a church our size, to squeeze all that into only 28 chapters. All right? So what I'm trying to explain to you is, this is a span of 30 years of the Holy Spirit moving in powerful ways, a church being launched, people moving all over the world, preaching the gospel in all these ways, miracles, uh, demons being cast out, incredible stuff, all squeezed down into 28 chapters. All right, so when you read the book of Acts, sometimes it feels like, oh my gosh, it's like every day something wild was happening in the early church. But guys, this is just the highlights. It's just a few little pieces here and there, here and there, that Luke is like, oh, I gotta get that one in. Oh, I can't forget that. Oh, this one's really good, but I don't have any more space. I need to go to this, you know? So, so keep that in mind as we, as we read through this. Um, but here's the thing. If you're the sort of person where, I mean, for some of you, you're like, oh, it's a history book. I love history. This is going to be amazing. Sign me up. Where's the documentary? You know? For others of you, you're like, history? Oh, I can't handle that stuff. I don't want to see another map. I don't want to hear about how this happened or where it happened. Well, there's good news for you, too. Because Acts is much more than just a history book. Because in it, what we get to, to do is we get to see God at work through people in some incredible ways. And from it, we begin to better understand what Jesus meant when he said, it's actually better that I go away. Because if I go away, I'm going to send my spirit, and that is what the whole church is going to launch from. 
And, and this, this plan that God had for creating the church really comes into focus. So as we study the book of Acts, we begin to better understand where we fit into history and God's plan for both our lives and for our church. So there's a whole lot in here for, for everybody. All right? So without any more of that introduction, are you guys ready to jump into this? All right, let's do it. The book of Acts, chapter 1, verse 1. Here's what it says. It says, In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach, until the day when he was taken up after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. Now let's go on and stop there for a second because there's already a couple things that might throw you off if you're not familiar with this. Um, this first book that he's referring to, I've already told you about. It was the Gospel of Luke. All right, That was the story of Jesus' life, the Gospel of Luke. Um, Matthew, Mark, Luke, third book of the Bible. You can go back and read that on your own if you want to. And it tells us in Luke chapter 1 that Theophilus, that's somebody's name, um, you might recognize a name like Theo, but Theophilus, it's a little weird. I don't know anybody of you named Theophilus. Maybe it's a middle name, I don't know. But Theophilus was the person that he was writing this to, all right? Um, and in Luke, it tells us the same thing, that Theophilus was the primary recipient that Luke had been writing for. Now, we don't know who this guy is. Uh, if you really want to try to get super geeky and look at the Greek words of it, theos is God and philosophus is, uh, uh, philosoph and all these kinds of things that we pull from that philos is one who loves. So, uh, and so what it could be is a lover of God. And so it could just be this generic name of everybody who loves God, all the Theophilus people, that's who we're writing to. Most likely though, it's probably a person. A person who had that, that was his name, Theo, we can call him. And, and we don't know if it was one of Luke's friends or if he was a, a wealthy patron or just somebody that Luke wanted to explain things very clearly for. It doesn't matter. The part that we're thankful for is that Theophilus was there because now we get to enjoy the book that Luke wrote for us, um, both of them in that, all right? So Acts is addressed to Theophilus and we're grateful for that. So, he goes on here in verse 3, and he says, and he's, remember he's talking about Jesus. He says, I, I wrote that first book that deals with all that Jesus did. And then it says in verse 3, he presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which, he said, you heard from me. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. Now, try to, if you, I hope most of you know the story of the Gospels. And I know that many of you have, and you've heard this. If you haven't, you should go home and read the book of Luke this week. Um, uh, actually read Mark. It's shorter and you'll be ready for next week, okay? But what happened um, at the end of the Gospels, um, what we see is that the followers of Jesus had really been put through the ringer in the last week of Jesus' life. All right, if you remember the story, what first happened was Jesus told his followers, he had these 12 disciples and these other followers, he told them, it's now time, guys. 
All the stuff that we've been working toward and building toward, the Father's timeline is taking place, and it's time for me to go back to Jerusalem. And so Jesus takes his followers, and they head into Jerusalem. But when they get to Jerusalem, they have what we talk about in Easter week, the triumphal entry, Palm Sunday. It was this amazing entrance. Jesus and his followers are coming from these little outlying towns, and they're coming to the big city. All right, and when they come into the big city, it is creating massive buzz. People all throughout the city have heard about this Jesus, this teacher, this prophet, this healer. And they are gathering, they're coming from all over the place to see this guy. He is the celebrity of the moment. All right? And when he comes into Jerusalem, they just pull out all the stops. They give him a royal welcome. They're cutting branches off of palm trees and waving them, and they're shouting, Hosanna, save us now, and this is the Messiah. And, and this incredible experience happens. And the disciples are like, what is going on right now? He has just gone viral. <laughs> He's blown up. Like, how is this possible? And so they come in, and they're just surging on this popularity wave, right? And everybody seems to love Jesus and love the disciples, and they're like, this is really cool, all right? But if you know how the story goes on, in less than a week, less than a week, I mean, they say, you know, 15 minutes of fame, (laughs) but it's less than a week, things completely reverse. We have the entire betrayal of, of Judas and what goes on with that. We have the religious leaders, the Jews, completely rejecting Jesus. We have ultimately this, this, uh, you know, he's brought into court and this kind of false trial that takes place, ultimately resulting in his crucifixion. All in one week. From being the most popular guy in town to being somebody that they're crucifying on a cross outside of town. All in a single week. So can you imagine being one of the followers One of these disciples going through the ups and downs of all this? Not only that, three days later, Easter happens. All right, so you've gone up. It's been amazing. Then this happened. That was terrible. This is bad. Oh, there's hope. No, there's no hope. Oh my gosh, he's dead. What are we going to do? Three days later, Jesus rises again. So, up again. So think about that. They've been through a lot. Been through all of this. It was a lot to process in the very short period of time. And so as Luke describes here, 40 days passed by. God um, graciously gave them a little space to kind of catch their breath, process all this, and be like, what just happened in all this time? All right. And, and, And what we see in this is during this time, Jesus appears to many people. And that's what, that's what Luke starts it off with. He says he, he, he appeared to many people after his resurrection. It wasn't just those 11 remaining disciples, because remember Judas is gone, he's dead now. It wasn't just to them, it was lots of people. In fact, in 1 Corinthians 15, it tells us this. It says, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, that's Peter's other name, and then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep, meaning they died. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, as the one untimely born, he appeared also to me. 
So throughout this period, these 40 days, Jesus let the truth of his resurrection start to sink in to all these followers. Because at first, when you'd gone through a week like that, the up and the down and the up and the down, you probably, even when you saw Jesus, I'm sure the disciples at the beginning, remember the whole deal with Thomas, he wasn't in the room with everybody else when Jesus first appeared. And then the rest of the disciples say, we saw Jesus, and he's like, you're nuts. (laughs) Well, we all saw him, we were all here together. Then you all had a hallucination together, you're all crazy. It took some time for that to settle in. And over these 40 days of over and over, we keep seeing Jesus. Okay, he really is alive. Was I just dreaming that? I wanted that to be true, but is it true? It's sinking in. They've got this idea. They know, okay, he really is here. And he allowed many people to see with their very own eyes that he was alive. And he also gave them two very important instructions. You might have picked it up there. The two instructions, first he says, I want you to stay in Jerusalem And secondly, I want you to wait for the promise. Stay in Jerusalem and wait for the promise. Well, what was the promise? They know where Jerusalem is. That's not hard. But what was the promise? It says that in verse verse 5. It tells us what that is. It was the very thing that he had told them about on several occasions. That they were going to be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Whatever that meant. He told them this is going to take place, and they're like, ah, we don't really have a precedent for that. This is kind of different. We don't understand it. And he even referred back where it says there, um, for John baptized with water, who he's referring to is John the Baptist. Again, this is a, a character from the Gospels. John the Baptist was somebody called by God to prepare the way for the Messiah. And what John the Baptist did is he came along and he started telling all the people of Israel, the Messiah is on his way, you need to get ready. Prepare yourselves, repent of your sins, get washed in baptism because you've got to be ready because the Messiah is coming. And what John the Baptist did was he said, look, I'm going to baptize in water, but there's one coming who's going to baptize with fire and the Holy Spirit. And that would be Jesus, the Messiah. And that's what Jesus is saying here. He says, it's just like I told you all along. It's just like John told you ahead of time that I would come and then I'd baptize you in the Holy Spirit. That is what you need to wait for. That is the promise. You know, when we had studied the Gospel of Mark um, throughout the summer, uh, toward the very end there, we looked at the Great Commission. When Jesus told them to go into all the world and proclaim the Gospel. All right, And, And we know that that's a call to Christians. But, what you might not have known is, but Jesus still said, but don't go do that quite yet. I actually want you to wait to be empowered by the Holy Spirit And then you're going to go do what you need to do. And that's what we see as we study through this. And so, in verse 6, here's what it says. It says, So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? Will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? Because here's, here's where these disciples, here's how these followers of Jesus are feeling. They've gone through this whole crazy emotional roller coaster, up, down, up, down, okay, now it's settled in here, we've had 40 days to realize Jesus is really alive, and the the weight of that hitting them is like, okay, this is pretty incredible, this is pretty radical, Jesus, our great teacher, our healer, our friend, the one who's full of love and compassion, he is the Messiah, he did die, we all saw this, he was really dead, but he's alive. 
And if he's alive, he's the first and only person that we have ever heard about that told us ahead of time, guys, I'm going to die. But don't freak out because I'm going to raise again from the dead. And not only did he tell us that he would do that, he did it. So if that's the case, this is all settled in. Our emotions have calmed. Our minds gotten it around it a little bit here. If this is the case, if he really said this and did this, which he did, then we know that the power of God is with this guy like no one else. And the things that he said are true. Because even the most ridiculous, radical thing he spoke is really true. If you have a friend that says, yeah, I can kill myself and raise again, you'd be like, you're nuts. We need to get you, you know, some, some health care here, some medical care. Jesus said it and did it. And so once that's happening, they realize, all right, he's got the power. He is the Messiah. Therefore, he must be the one that is going to do what we've always heard about from the time we were little kids as little Jews being raised in Israel, which is that the Messiah would come and establish this political kingdom that would be the world superpower. That they would rule over every other nation. And right now, here in Jerusalem, where these, these followers of Jesus are, they are under control of the Roman Empire. The Roman Empire is the superpower of the world at the time. They've got power in Africa, in Asia, in the Middle East, through Europe. Rome is it. They're the superpower. So the disciples, as they're thinking through all this, processing it, all right, all right, well, he's the Messiah, he's here, he's full of God's power, then what we've always heard must happen. It's got to be the time. So the first question they've got for Jesus is, so is this it? Is this the time where you build this huge army that overtakes the rest of the world, and all of a sudden we're going to be these powerful, political, influential people, and we're going to wipe out Rome and everybody else, and we're now going to rule the world? Is that what's taking place? That's the question that they ask him. And let's see what his answer is here in verse 7 and 8. It says, So he said to them, It's not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. Now, this is not the sort of answer that these disciples were looking for. This is not what they were expecting. The times and seasons of God, he says there, are hidden from humanity. They wanted to know God's timeline. They're like, here we are, we're with you, Jesus. Can you give us the full layout of what happens next? Because for some reason... Human beings, we're curious like that. We want to know. How does this world end? How are things going to go in the future? What's going to happen next? How is this going to be? Right? For those of you who uh, sometimes struggle with worry, part of the whole worry thing that we have with worry is, well, what's going to happen? I don't know. What if? What about that? If you knew ahead of time, well, no, this is going to happen and everything else is going to be fine in between, you'd be like, oh, sweet. I don't have to worry about that anymore. But when you don't know it, the unknown is sometimes scary. The unknown kind of keeps us from trying to figure this out. But here's the reason that, that God hides those things from humanity. The reason is we can't handle the truth. 
As you might remember that old line from a movie. You can't handle the truth. You can't, guys. I can't. We can't. We can't handle the truth. Because our finite minds and our selfish tendencies wouldn't allow us to function the right way if we had this information. Think about it. How would you live if you knew, without a question, that this was your very last week on earth? It's all you get, guys. You will not be here next Sunday. How would you live? Or, what if this was your last year on earth? Or, how would you live differently if you knew that there's only one more year for the history of the earth? If we knew very clearly the world will end on September 3rd of 2024. I'm not saying it's going to, guys. But how would you live differently? Think about it. Your life would be drastically different, wouldn't it? If you only knew you had a week left or a year left, you'd live very differently. It is good that the length of our lives is hidden from us, that the span of history is veiled. Because most of us, if we had that information, we'd probably spin out of control. I hate to say it, but it's probably true. Instead, that tension of unknowing helps us kind of stay in check. You might have, nobody knows, you may only have a few days left, but you may have years left. We don't know. And so living in that tension of what is happening and what's to come holds us in place. But still, people are always curious about those details. There have always been people trying to decode the end of the world and naming another antichrist and a proof text to argue their, their idea. And I do believe that it's important for us to know what the scripture says about the end times and, and the, the fate of the world and all that. It is important to know those things. But that should never be the main thing for us. And that is sometimes where people get with their faith. It's like, I just got to know, I just want to study Revelation and the prophecies of Daniel. And I'm just going to spend all my time there. And I'm going to go to these uh, prophecy um, seminars and, and I want to learn about this stuff. And I've got to see when's the end. And I'm going to look for the next guy who's done all the, the numerology to figure out from this book and that number. If you pad that together and this, and it's got to be this date. And they do all these things and they write these books and all this stuff. Here's the thing. Those things were never that important to Jesus. They weren't. Even though people were often asking him about it. And here, it's no different. Instead of giving them those details, he actually changes the subject. Instead of answering, was well, this the time, Lord, when you're going to establish? He's like, yeah, it's not time for you to know about those things. But instead, let me tell you something I am excited about. And that's about the promise. His focus was on the thing that really mattered, the promise, the promise of the Father. And the Father was about to do something that would rock the very foundation of human civilization and permanently alter the spiritual realm. Because spiritual power was about to be poured out on the earth in a way that had never happened before. That's what he's pointing, pointing towards. So what would this power do in their lives um, there in verse 8? What would that do? He says there, he says, it would empower them to become witnesses. And don't get hung up on these three places that you might not know where they're at. Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria. Jerusalem was the city that they were living in. It's like Chula Vista here. 
Judea was the region that Jerusalem was in, so that's like San Diego County. Samaria was the next region north, so that's like Orange County, all right? So what he's saying is, you're going to be my witnesses here in Chula Vista, in San Diego County, even to Orange County, and then to the end of the world. That's what he's, that's what he's describing there to, to them. But what did that really mean? That he was going to empower them to be witnesses? Because why did they need to be empowered to witness? They could already share their testimonies of, of what they had seen and heard, right? They've already gone through it. They can tell this is what happened. We saw this. We saw the risen Jesus. They could tell that stuff. So why do they need to be empowered? Because this witness that he's describing here, this witness was more than just conveying information. Okay? When we witness to the world around us with more than just words, and yeah, we witness with our lives, but there's more. Because the task that they were given and the task that we're given when we reach out to the world around us is a spiritual task. If you've never heard me say this before, you will now and you will many other times, spiritual work requires spiritual power. Spiritual work requires spiritual power. In fact, the word for power here in verse 8, the, the Greek word is dunamis. It's where we get our word for power dynamite the power that he's talking about is an explosive power this power that he's promising them this power is something that has a a unique element to it that is to it that's dynamic it's 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 explosive they were being given the power of god almighty that's why jesus is excited about this he's like you guys are worried about whether or not you're going to be in control don't worry about that you're about to get power poured into your lives a power. And the reason is because that is the power needed to change lives. I think Jesus probably told them this with a smile on his face. Uh, they're wanting to ask about all the, the political stuff, and he's like, yeah, 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 yeah. But let me tell you about this. Guess what's about to happen? This is what I'm excited about. He was excited for them to be empowered and transformed by his spirit. So fast forward now to today, to 2023. What does all this have to do with us? We see these disciples 2,000 years ago waiting for this promise, but what, what about us? As we go on into the book of Acts, not today, but as we go on, we're going to see these believers baptized with the Holy Spirit, and we're going to see what that looks like on the day of Pentecost. That event will never be duplicated, but the infilling of the power of the Holy Spirit continues to happen in the lives of believers today, and that's important for you to understand. As we talked about a few weeks ago, when we reach others with the love of Jesus, we're engaging in a spiritual work. There's a spiritual activity taking place. And that work requires spiritual power. We need his power. Jesus said in John 15, 5, he said, Whoever abides in me and I in him, that is his spirit in us, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, You can do nothing. Does that mean you can't get out of bed in the morning and, you know, walk to your closet and get dressed and go back your day? No, he's he's given everybody that power. What he's talking about is he's talking about a fruitfulness, a spiritual fruitfulness that lasts. And he says, apart from me, you can't do any of that. Without my spirit, without my empowerment, it won't happen. We need the spirit of God to live in us and empower us. Now, 
I realize there are different theological positions on how and when all this takes place, okay? Some say that we receive the power the moment that we receive salvation. Others describe it as a a second work of grace, they'll call it sometimes. But both positions, no matter what sort of traditional background you come from or theological stance you've um, acquired, both positions agree that the Spirit of God takes up residency in us when we believe. Right? 1 Corinthians 6.19 says, Or do you not know that your body, he's talking to a church, a bunch of Christians, your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, you whom you have from God. You're not your own. All right? In Romans 8, 9 to 11, he says, You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if, in fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. If the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. What kind of life is being given? This new spiritual life. Not just human, I'm alive and breathing and walking and moving. No, a spiritual life is taking place. That's what's being described. When the Holy Spirit indwells you, your spirit is becoming awake and alive and and moving and doing what the Spirit of God is doing. Your salvation has been secured. The work of sanctification has begun when the Holy Spirit dwells within you. But these followers, these followers of Jesus, they were already believers. In fact, in in John 20, 22, we see that the apostles had already received the Holy Spirit. Um, It said uh, Jesus breathed on them and said, receive my spirit. He'd already received them, John 20. All right? But no matter your theological position, it's clear that Christians need to be empowered to be and to do what Jesus calls us to. And here's the thing, there are too many Christians, and I hope it's none of you, but there are too many Christians that are attempting to live the Christian life without the power of the Holy Spirit. Whether they receive the power and have not yet activated it in their lives, or if they have yet to receive the power, depending on your theological stance, either way, They're trying to live out of their own strength and their own power without the empowerment of the Holy Spirit. And John Piper, a pastor and and a theologian, says this. Um, He says, I sometimes fear that we have so redefined conversion in terms of human decisions and have so removed any necessity of the experience of God's Spirit that many people think that they're saved when in fact, they only have Christian ideas in their head, not spiritual power in their heart. That's heavy. That's heavy. And let me just say to you guys, my brothers and sisters in Christ, we won't make it in this life without the power of the Holy Spirit. We cannot live the abundant life that Jesus came to give us without being empowered by the Holy Spirit. We'll try really hard, and some of you could be really good at it, but we will not make it 
You cannot live as God's calling you to live and be who God's calling you to be without being empowered by the Holy Spirit. That's why Jesus was so excited and so pumped to say, yes, guys, I'm gonna leave. It's gonna be awesome. And they're like, no, Jesus, stay. He's like, no, it's gonna be better. It's gonna be better because I'm gonna send my spirit to empower you. We live in a nation, a culture, and a world where this is gonna continue to become more and more obvious. Especially in, in the United States, there's been a period of history, like no other period of history, where you can really get by as a Christian because everybody's a Christian and it's no big deal. But that window of history is most likely changing unless God does something really radical in reviving uh, this nation as a whole. And so what's going to happen, and instead of being the majority of this nation as a Christian people, it's the Christian faith is going to become a minority. I don't say that to scare you, because that's actually been the way it's been for the past 2,000 years in most places. Okay? Don't worry about that. What you've got to worry about is, am I being empowered by the Spirit of God to live the life that he's called me to live? And it doesn't matter where I'm living. Whether it's a, a, a communist nation, a, a, a Muslim nation, a, a closed country, wherever it is, the Spirit of God can empower you to do those things and live the way that we need to live. We need the power of His Spirit. And it's by that Spirit that we can live the life we're called to. And you know what? When we're empowered by the Spirit, everything starts changing. Our marriages will be transformed. Guys, if you're trying to be married and live in a marriage relationship without the empowerment of the Holy Spirit? It wouldn't work for me. <laughs> Maybe you guys have pulled, can pull it off. <laughs> I couldn't, right? Our friendships, our relationships, our work lives, everything about us is transformed uh, when, when we're being filled with the Holy Spirit. All of our behaviors that we seem powerless against are free, we become free through the power of the Spirit. Romans 8, 13, 14 says, if you live according to the flesh, you'll die. And he's talking about spiritual death here, right? But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you'll live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are the sons and daughters of God. I don't know what all your struggles are, but I do know that the power of God is greater than the power of what you're fighting against. So, as we wrap this up a bit, how then do we receive it? You're like, okay, that sounds great. Sign me up. I want to live by the Spirit. How do I do that? We do the same thing that Jesus told his followers right here in Acts. What he told them, I told you, uh, he gave them two instructions, important instructions. Uh, he said, for them, stay in Jerusalem and wait for the promise. All right, in, in a similar way, what we're supposed to do is we're supposed to put ourselves where Jesus has told us to be and we're to wait for the promise. Okay? Now, where has he told me to be? That's the question. Now, it might mean an actual location. In these guys' case, it was Jerusalem. He's like, stay here. You need to stay put. Be right here. For some of you, maybe God has spoken to you at some point and said, you know what? It's time for you to move to St. Louis. And you're like, St. Louis? I'm choosing San Diego, God. I'm not ready to go there yet, okay? All right, it could be a location like that, but it doesn't have to be that because it's all about obedience. It's about obeying what God's called you to, all right? And so the question is, is there a place in your life where you're not obeying God? Does unforgiveness have a hold of your heart? Are you driven by lust or greed or, 
or ambition? Are you allowing anger or impatience to rule over you? Because these things are what we call sin. This is just simple disobedience against God. You're not where God wants you to be. And you've got to get to a place where you are where God wants you to be if you want to experience that entire full filling of the Spirit of God working through you. Because what sin does, we talk about this all the time, sin damages relationship. That's actually the definition of sin. Anything that damages relationship. Either our relationship between us and God or our relationship with other people. That's why it counts as sin. All right? And, and if we can figure out what is the thing that's between me and God, that's what stifles the flow of the Holy Spirit in our lives. That's what slows down our spiritual growth. That's what gets in between us and God. It's, it's sin. And so if there's ongoing sin in your life, you're not where Jesus called you to be. He's told you to be here. And he has a reason for it. I've seen this in my own life. Um, times where there's no evidence of spiritual power in my life. And I'm like, what is choking me up? What is going on here? Times when I have to take a good look at my heart and say, what do I need to get in order? What do I need to sort out? Now, even in those times, I don't want you to feel hopeless. Jesus is not going to abandon you. Even in those times and in those places, he won't. But that sin is having an impact on your soul. And it's, it's clogging things up. It needs to be fixed. So what do we do if we're not where Jesus has called us to be? It's very simple. We repent. We repent. We turn away from our sin. We ask for the empowerment of God to help us walk away from those things and walk where we're supposed to go. And sometimes it's hard because sometimes that obedience, hey, I've been angry my whole life. It's easy for me to stay angry and do angry, and that's how I know, and that's who I am. That's everybody knows who I am. I'm a little explosive. I'm Irish, whatever the thing is that you use, you know. But for that to change, it's not always easy. It's not always easy, but that's where we start. We start with repentance, and we ask God to transform us. Okay, so that's the first thing. That's how we get where we're supposed to be. Secondly, well, how do I wait? They were to stay in Jerusalem and wait for the promise. How do I wait? Well, like so many times in the Bible, Waiting, this waiting, is an active sort of waiting. It doesn't mean you just go home and sit on the couch and turn on the TV and wait for something great to happen. That's not what it is. It can even be productive waiting. We see, and we're going to see, that the disciples knew exactly what Jesus meant when he told them to wait. He said, I want you to wait in Jerusalem. And so what do they do? They get a room together, they gather together with other believers, and they start praying. They know, okay, this is what Jesus would do when it had, he had some time to, to wait He's praying, he's seeking the Lord, he's thinking about that, they're reading scripture, they're, they're gathered together, they're worshiping together. That's the sort of thing that we do. It's a God-focused sort of a, a waiting. And it's waiting with an anticipation of what's about to happen, an expectation of something really cool is going to happen. All right? Have you ever had somebody important come over to your house? You know, somebody's going to come visit you. Maybe it's a family member on a holiday or something, and you're excited about it. You're like, oh, I can't wait for them to get here. And they're not quite there yet, and you're, you're, you, any minute they're coming, right? And you're kind of, you're getting things ready. What are you going to do? Are you just going to kind of sit, oh, they'll get here eventually, whatever? No, most of the time, if you're really excited about it, you're like tidying things up. You're like, I should probably sweep this floor. It's been a while. I, I, you know, put that in order. Hide the trash in that closet. Let's, let's get this ready because I'm excited about people are coming over. And I want them to be here. And I can't wait for them to be here. This is the kind of waiting that's, that's being described. 
when we wait for the Lord, we're naturally going to lean into things like prayer and worship and the word. We're anticipating and expecting and we're preparing ourselves for what he wants to do. And so if we desire to be empowered with the Holy Spirit, um, let us ask to receive it. Luke eleven thirteen, Jesus said this. He said, if you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? You ask him. That's part of the waiting. If you say, yes, that's what I need. I came here to church today, and I looked at my, the week behind me, and I'm like, that was awful. What was going on? What do I need? I came to church, and the pastors told me what I need. I need the Holy Spirit to fill me. So what do I need to do? I need to look at my life and say, is there an area I need to repent? If so, I'm going to do it. And secondly, I'm going to wait for God. I'm going to ask him to fill me. And what the, the Bible tells us, what Jesus tells us is, he loves you. He wants to fill you with his spirit. He wants to bless you with his spirit. So ask him. My prayer for each of us today is that we would be people that have received and continue to receive the power of the Holy Spirit in our daily lives. That's a church of Christians. People that are overflowing with the Spirit of God. That are being transformed by the Spirit of God. That's what a church is supposed to be like. And an empowered church is an incredible thing. Have you ever thought about this? Don't you want Jesus to be excited about our church? I, I do. I want Jesus to be like, you know, the edge of heaven, like, oh, whoa, angels, check that out. Look what's going on over here. Ooh, what's going to happen next? Wait till my spirit does this among them, you know? Like, that's what we want. We want that. We want a church that is empowered by God. And I want him to then use us to not only transform our own personal lives, but then to, to stretch beyond that, right? That our marriages are healed, that our lives are transformed, and then our community around us begins to know the love of God. That they start to see hope and a way to live that's different than the way that they're living. That's what it's supposed to be like. That can only happen by the Holy Spirit. We're not gonna argue people into heaven. It's not gonna happen. It needs, we need the Holy Spirit. I'm way out of time. Sorry, it was, it's the first, it's Acts, we're starting here, okay? I'll make it shorter next week, all right? Let, pray with me. God, I do thank you this morning for your word. And I thank you, Lord, for um, this book that we're embarking on this study of, Lord. And I pray today that even as we begin here, God, that, that we would get this part right. Because if we can live in this way, in this way where we're truly transformed and we're changed. Oh, Lord, we're not going to be able to contain the joy that's pouring out of this place and out of this community. And so, Lord, today I pray that you would convict the hearts of my brothers and sisters here to lean into what you have for them in their lives. And today, if, if there's anyone here today First off, let me, let me pray this. If there's anyone here today that does not know you, God, I pray that today you would draw them to yourself. Maybe today they hear this message and they realize, whoa, I'm not only not filled with the Holy Spirit, I don't even, I hadn't even believed in Jesus to be my Lord and Savior yet. 
And so if that's the case, Lord, I pray that you would draw them to yourself right now and right where they're at, in their hearts, that they would simply pray that prayer to put their hope and trust into you, to ask you to come into their lives and to indwell them for the very first time. And I know you're so good and you desire to do that in every human. And so I pray, Lord, that you would allow that to take place today, that maybe today is the day of salvation for some. But for most of us, I've got a feeling that where most of us are is there's, there's a larger group of us here today that, that probably don't feel empowered by the Spirit. We don't feel like maybe we're walking the way we really could be walking or maybe even walking the way we've walked in the past. And so today, Lord, I pray that you would search our hearts by your Spirit. Allow us to, to dig deep into our hearts to know Lord, if there's any place in us where we're, we're in a place where we're not supposed to be. And God, I pray that by your spirit, you would enable us to have the courage and the humility to bring those things to you. And, and Lord, that you would put us where we need to be. If there's sin in our lives here today, Lord, that we re would repent of that sin. And sin gets a hard hold on us. And we can't always break its grip, but you can you can break the power of sin in our lives. You promise your children freedom. And so, Lord, I pray today that you would bring freedom among us as a church. And if there's anything right now that's kind of popping up in somebody's mind, Lord, that they'd repent of that sin, get it taken care of, and leave it behind them here today. And finally, Lord, as we wait for you and as we uh, enjoy communion together as a church today, I pray, Lord, that we would be reminded that you are dwelling within us and, Lord, that your spirit would come upon us in a powerful way, that we would ask to be filled, to be transformed, to be empowered, to be overflowing with your spirit, um, that you would be able to do all that you desire to do in and among us. And I pray these things in Jesus' name.